0: You just never know what's going to happen during the announcement section. <laughs> Let's uh, take our Bibles this morning and open them to the 24th chapter of the book of Genesis. taking a look at verse 10 maybe all the way through verse 27 today the title of our message this morning is God answers prayer you guys believe that God is a tremendous answerer of prayer Particularly prayers that are within his will. It's almost as if God moves heaven and earth to see that those prayers are answered. And we're going to see that today as we begin in verse 10 of Genesis 24. This is a section of Abraham's life dealing with the marriage of his son Isaac. It obviously is a very significant section when you just look at it in terms of volume. Uh, There are basically 67 or so verses devoted to this subject. The Holy Spirit apparently wants us to understand, given that volume, how Abraham's son Isaac became married To Rebecca, and that's a big deal because through that Isaac-Rebecca union would come Jacob. And through Jacob would come Jacob's dozen, his twelve sons who became the twelve tribes of Israel. One of those tribes, as we'll see in our study of Genesis, is very special, named Judah, because through Judah is going to come Jesus. All of which would be an impossibility had the Lord not put together this marriage between Isaac and Rebekah. Verses 1-9 through nine is Abraham gave his servant specific instructions related to seeking a wife for Isaac. The servant actually was told to take a solemn vow to Abraham that he would do this. And he was specifically told not to take Isaac out of the land. Isaac is to stay in the land, but rather the servant who we think, and we don't know this for sure, but the servant could very well be Eliezer of Damascus, who is mentioned in Abraham's household all the way back in Genesis chapter 15 around verse 1. So this man, the servant, Eliezer Damascus, if he is indeed the servant, is given instructions to obtain a wife for Isaac. He is not, by solemn vow, to take Isaac out of the promised land, but he is to go to his kindred, Abraham's kin, kindred, outside the land of Israel, in the land of Haran, to obtain a wife for Isaac. Isaac is not to marry a Canaanite, in other words. And we talked about the significance of that last time. So with that oath being taken, the servant now begins to pray and embark on the journey. And as we look at verses 10 through 14, you'll notice that the journey is described. Verse 10, it says, Then the servant took ten camels... From the camels of his master, and he set out with a variety of good things with his master in his hand, he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. One of the things that's interesting to note here is that when the servant goes on this God-ordained mission, he was well provided for. He took ten camels and many other good things of his master Abraham's household and went on this quest so to speak into Mesopotamia up north into Haran to obtain a wife for Isaac one of the great principles to learn as we walk with the Lord is simply this where God guides God provides when God embarks Us or we embark on a job for God, you don't have to be converted into a a pauper, a professional beggar. Because God is capable of paying for what he orders. God is not like one of these people that orders an expensive meal at a restaurant and then says, Oh my goodness, I left my wallet at home. How am I going to pay? I guess I need to wash dishes. So many ministries, they give you the impression that God is broke. And there's this continual pressure for finances, continual pressure for money. And when I see that happening, I wonder, has that ministry gotten outside the leading of God? Because when you walk in the leading of God, what you'll discover is that God provides every step of the way. I'm reminded of the book of Acts chapter 28 and verse 10 as Paul, I believe there, was on uh, an island called Malta en route to Rome. And he has said over and over again in the book of Acts, it is God's will for me to go to Rome. There's a very interesting passage or verse in Acts 28 verse 10 where it talks about the inhabitants of Malta it says they honored us with many marks of respect and when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all that we needed. It's interesting that those that had just come to Christ wanted to provide and finance Paul's final leg of the journey and we would expect that because where God guides, God provides. I don't always know how the provision of God is going to come. God doesn't ask me ahead of time if he can do things this way or that way financially. I just know that it will come as we walk in the will of God by way of faith because where God guides, God provides the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verse 19 says, My God shall supply all of my needs. Whoops, didn't say that. My God shall supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I'm reminded of the children of Israel as they came out of Egypt and were walking with the Lord. In the desert, and as you know, they spent 40 years out there, and how God provided manna for them every single day. The only exception would be the Sabbath, and prior to the Sabbath, they could go out and collect more than for that particular day, and how that manna was there for 40 years, like clockwork until the moment that they entered the promised land under Joshua and the land which flowed with milk and honey was capable of sustaining its inhabitants and it's that point that the manna stopped. The manna kept coming daily. Didn't Jesus say, give us this day our daily bread. It it was there daily for 40 years. And you're not dealing with uh, people there in the wilderness that were exactly happy campers. Let's put it that way. And they're complaining every chance they got. And yet God had a path for them. He provided for them for 40 years. And the manna was there like clockwork on a daily basis until the moment they set foot in the promised land. Where God guides, God provides. God has embarked or sent this servant rather to embark on... Retrieving this wife for Isaac and the, there you see it there at the beginning of verse 10, the provision of God. It's interesting that the servant says, "Then the servant took ten camels and the camels of his master and sent them out with a variety of good things of his master's hand. The servant here, Eliezer, arguably Eliezer of Damascus, is a tremendous example of stewardship as we're going to see. He does not see himself as the owner, but the manager of God's, Abraham's blessings. His whole focus is on executing the will of Abraham. He's not there for self-centered purposes. He's there for his master. I think that's a wonderful picture as we'll see it unfold in these verses of our lives in Christ. We're not here for ourselves, we're not here to promote our own ideas, our own agenda, but who are we at the end of the day? It's interesting, so many New Testament writers describe themselves as, through the word doulos in Greek, slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not owner of the blessings God has given us, but we are indeed managers. We will give an account for our stewardship, but we are here to please Him and to execute His will rather than our own. And that's what you see um, characterized so well in this uh, this servant. So where did the servant go? At the end of verse 10, it says, He arose and he went to Mesopotamia, to the city of uh, Nahor, where is... Uh, Mesopotamia, it's basically that area between the Euphrates and the Tigris. Mesopotamia actually is a Greek word. Meso-middle-potamia-rivers, as in Potomac, um, between the rivers. So he was moving from the land of Israel there on the, the coast of the Mediterranean Sea into that area but he was not going back to Ur of the Chaldeans, where Abraham was from. He was going up north to an area called Haran. How do we know that? Because Genesis 11 verse 31 tells us that that's where Abraham's family migrated. Genesis eleven thirty-one 31 says, Terah, that's Abraham's father, took Abraham his son, uh, took Abraham his son, And Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, and they went together from Ur, that's the area circled there in the east, They went from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan, and they went as far as Haran and settled there. So the servant is to find this wife for Isaac up in that area called Haran, which, by the way, it doesn't really reflect it well on the map, but the commentators say that's a journey of 450 miles. So this is no light expedition that's happening here. The servant is totally dependent upon the leading of God, the guidance of God. This is obviously around 2000 BC, you know, before modern luxury aircraft. And this is basically being done on horseback. And he's having to go to find someone that he's never met before. And bring her back into the land of Canaan, later to become the land of Israel, To marry Abraham's son, Isaac. I mean, this is no easy task. So this servant, as we're going to see, is in deep prayer. The greater the task, the greater the prayer that's needed. Amen? You might be involved in some great task yourself of some kind. And you don't know how it's going to be executed. You don't know how it's going to be pulled off. You don't know how all of the pieces are going to come together. And I would just encourage you to pray and entrust your circumstances to God. Because when you think about it, you don't really need to understand how everything's going to come together. What you have to understand is that God is in charge of the project. And He will lead and He will guide. He is not asking us to understand everything on the front end. He's asking us to walk by way of faith, being in prayer, trusting in the work of God, the provision of God, and God will make the pieces come together, which he so beautifully does here in Genesis chapter 24. The servant arrives in Haran. You see that there in verse 11 of Genesis 24. It says, he made camels kneel. Down outside the city by the well of water at evening time. The time when women, and that is an issue um, because Isaac's wife is going to be a woman. Is it okay if I say that in this day and age? Amen. Amen. The time when women go out to draw water. It's interesting that that is actually a practice, women going out to draw water, that's still followed in Arabic towns in the Middle East today. So this uh, this situation there in verse 11 fits very well the culture of the day. And then you see the servant offering a prayer. And look at the specificity of this prayer, verse 12. And he, that's the servant, said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show me loving kindness, show loving kindness rather to my master Abraham. It's interesting the servant is not saying help my plans work out, give me success. Basically what he's saying is there's a bigger picture here, there's a larger picture here. I want my servant my master, rather, Abraham, to be blessed. That's a pretty good picture of how we should go about daily life. Lord, help help this to work out so you can be blessed. So you can be glorified. So your name can be made great, rather than our own name. 1 Corinthians um, chapter 4. And verse two says this of stewards. It says, in the case, in this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy or faithful. That's who this servant was. He was faithful. And one of the words that we all want to hear, or some of the words that we all want to hear at the famous seat judgment is, well done, thy good and faithful servant. It's interesting that when those words are uttered, it doesn't say, well done, thy good and successful servant. I'm not sure if God is really calling us to success the way we think about it in the United States of America. But he is calling us to a walk of faithfulness. Were you trustworthy or faithful concerning what I put into your hands? And you'll notice that this servant is now in prayer. Because he's got a task in front of him that's bigger than him. I'm reminded of the book of Daniel, chapter 2, verse 13, where it says, So the decree went forth, and the, that the wise men should be slain, and they look for Daniel and his friends to kill them. Daniel is a mere teenager when those words were uttered. A decree has been issued by Nebuchadnezzar to kill all of the so-called wise men within Babylon. Babylon, Daniel as a mere teenager was part of that wise men's group. And so Daniel as a mere teenager, his life was on the line, just like that. And what does Daniel do? Does he, does he get angry? Does he form a, a protest of some kind? Does he start to petition the government? No. What you'll see Daniel doing at a very early age is going right to prayer. Daniel 2 verse 13 says the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain. And they look for Daniel and his friends to kill them. And then Daniel 2 verse 18 says so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven. Concerning this mystery, so Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Daniel and his friends immediately went to prayer. I have to be honest with you that I sometimes will treat prayer as sort of the last resort. I hit a crisis and I try to figure my way out of the crisis And then when nothing else seems to be working out, I say, well, I guess as a last resort, you know, I better pray. When prayer ought to be the first thing that comes to our minds. There's no greater opportunity to become a person of prayer than the crises of life. And this servant is in a tremendous crisis in a sense. This task is bigger than him and his first order of business. Is prayer. And it is interesting in verse 10 that he seems to recognize that his success is only going to be successful in terms of uniting Isaac and Rebecca. He doesn't even know the name Rebecca yet. Is if God is involved in the project. You know, God, I have no chance of success whatsoever unless you make it successful. Psalm 127 in verse 1, it says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. The Bible says it doesn't do you any good to build a wall around your city or to watch over it. Unless the Lord is the builder and watcher of that city. I mean, we can we can have all of our plans and our goals and our aspirations and our ambitions. But at the end of the day, we have to be honest with ourselves. These things are not going to come into existence unless the Lord puts his hand of grace upon it. So with that attitude of prayer, the servant then offers a prayer request to God. And that's described in verses 13 and 14. Behold, I am standing by the spring and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. All of these women are coming out to draw water. How do I know which of these women in Haran is the wife for Rebecca? So the circumstances for the prayer are given in verse 13. So notice also verse 14, that the specifics of the prayer request by the servant. Now may it be... "...that the girl whom I say, please let down your jar so that I may drink, and who answers drink, and I will water your camels also. May she be the one to whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown loving kindness to my master." Notice, again, the servant's priority, not to his plans, but ultimately to the benefit of his master, Abraham. Notice how specific this prayer request is. I'm going to go up to some of these women and I'm going to say, you know, can I have a drink of water? And Lord, could you make it so that the one that turns around and says, yes, you could have a drink of water. And then your camels can drink also. That's the one. That's pretty specific. I don't think there's any shame when we pray to ask in detail or specificity. Because if you don't ask by way of prayer in detail and specificity, how would you ever know if your prayer request has been answered or not? Also, you'll notice verse 14, the character of the woman. That is to be Isaac's wife. She's obviously a person of industriousness. She's obviously a person of self-sacrifice. She's obviously a person who wants to bless others. Because she'll in response say, you can drink and your camels can drink too. That's the the type of woman that God was raising up for Isaac. Isaac. She was not a selfish person. She was not someone whose Holy Trinity consisted of me, myself, and I. But she was someone who was caring and had great concern for the benefit of others. As you look at Rebecca here in this chapter, she's active. I had a friend of mine, older gentleman, when I was still unmarried around the age of 30, right in there. He said to me, well, why aren't you married? I said, well, I just haven't met Mrs. Wright yet. Of course, and I didn't know yet at that point. And he said something very interesting. He says, well, you know, if you want to meet Mrs. Wright, you better be Mr. Wright. <laughs> and what he was saying is, if you're going to meet the right person, you better focus on your character. You better focus on yourself. I mean, are you, you know, doing the little things that matter? Because God loves people an awful lot. And he's really not interested in sending somebody into your messed up life, is basically what he was saying. So in preparation for the blessings of God in marriage, a person should ought to be, ought to be a person who is faithful in what God has given them already. Because the Bible says if you're faithful with the little things, then you can be trusted with the what? The greater things. And you see this with Rebecca. I mean, she is um, industrious. She is a servant. She, in a certain sense, is a is a worker. I mean, this is not a, a selfish um, person at all. And so her response, as we're going to see, demonstrates this servant mindset. So we've had Abraham's instructions to the servant. We've had the servant praying. And now you move to verses 15 through 27 where the servant finally meets uh, Rebekah. You'll notice, uh, first of all, the two are introduced, the servant and Rebekah. And notice how fast God answers this prayer. Before he had finished speaking... In other words, before he even finished his prayer request to God, God was answering. Behold, before he had finished speaking, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, came out with her jar on her shoulder. When you walk in the will of God, one of the things that's very interesting is you'll start to see prayer requests answered very, very quickly. And that's kind of a new thing for us because many times we're asking for the Lord for things and we don't get an immediate answer, which is not a bad thing, by the way, if the Lord doesn't give you an immediate answer. He simply has something better for you down the road. Maybe he's preparing you for it. But in this case, he, the servant, is directly in the will of God and immediately... This prayer request is answered before he had even stopped speaking to the Lord by way of prayer. The book of 1st John, chapter 5 and verse 14 says, This is the confidence which we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. I remember when I was, um, In California as an attorney, the Lord had sort of dealt with me about the fact that I needed to leave my law practice, I needed to leave the state of California, and I needed to involve myself in full-time seminary, biblical, and theological studies. Well, you just can't end a law practice in 10 seconds. Uh, You've got clients and... Issues drawing out, and I remember going to the Lord with that, praying about it as I was contemplating. We were contemplating leaving California, going to Texas, and there was one particular case. I could not believe how fast it got fixed or resolved. And this is California, by the way. I mean, this matter that we had just got resolved just like that. The judge gave a decision. It was over. And it happened nanosecond. It happened almost overnight. And it sort of, um, shocked me when that took place. You know, I I didn't know, Lord, you, you know, answered prayers that quickly. Uh, but what you'll find is, as you're walking in the will of God, what you'll discover is a lot of things that you think are going to take a long time, God just has a tendency to take care of it. Lickety split. And, that's what you see happening here with the servant's prayer. Rebekah, of course, has a family tree. Verse 15, Nahor, Rebecca, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother, Nahor. Abraham has a brother named Nahor, living in Haran. Nahor is married to Milcah, and from that union comes Bethuel. And from that union comes our wife, bride at this point, a woman named uh, Rebecca. God is putting this whole thing together before these participants even knew each other, even knew each other's names. End of uh, verse 15, it says she came out with her jar on her shoulder. So she arrives. Verse 16. Look at this. The girl was very beautiful. That kind of reminds me of Sarah, doesn't it? That we studied back in Genesis 12. Abraham's wife. It says in Genesis 12 verse 11. It came about that when he came near to Egypt. That he said to Sarai, his wife. See, I know that you are a very beautiful woman. It's interesting how God will bless you in this area as he draws two people together. Physical beauty and then that internal beauty of character. Rebecca, as I'm reading this, apparently had both. You continue on with verse 16 and it says, The girl was very beautiful. Look at this, a virgin. And no man had had relations uh, with her. Her arrival is described at the end of verse 16. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Second, beyond her beauty, she was a virgin. The Hebrew word here is betulah, from the Hebrew word betal, which means to separate, to keep oneself in modesty, to be marriageable. Now, you don't think that the current generation needs teaching on this? Where basically the youth are told, you know, go sow a few wild oats. That's not what the Bible teaches. It talks about keeping oneself pure for their wedding. That's why the bride is dressed in white in our culture, symbolizing or pointing to purity. This mindset is very foreign today to the way the Western world works with all of its hookups, dating apps, racy movies, Um, uh, you know, God is, is operating here, obviously completely different than the world standards that we're accustomed to. Dr. Fruchtenbaum says the word itself does not denote absolute virginity. This is why the author had to add an explanation. Neither had any man known her. An explanation that would have been, would not have been necessary. if the the word betula by itself was sufficient to denote absolute virginity. The Hebrews, they had no word for virgin. And so when the word betula is used, this expression, she had not known a man, had to be added. Because the word itself does not communicate virginity on its own. The Talmud, Dr. Fruchtenbaum says, also recognized this fact. Betula by itself does not imply the characteristic of virgin purity, but only states age and condition. The word Alma, as in Isaiah 7 verse 14, is a better word to convey the truth. Verse 16b states, her arrival and she went out to the fountain and filled her pitcher and came up. This point that he's making about how there is no precise word for virgin in the Hebrew language is a big deal in the book of Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 which is a prophecy given 700 years in advance concerning the virgin birth of Jesus it says in Isaiah 7 verse 14 therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign behold a virgin virgin will be with a child and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. The Hebrew word there for virgin, translated virgin in English, is the Hebrew word Alma. And we believe that this is a prophecy concerning the virgin birth of Christ. Now, unbelieving Jewish people don't believe that. In fact, I'll give you the name of someone that I heard on the radio arguing against this. I agree with his worldview. I agree with his politics. The gentleman's name is Dennis Prager. And I was listening to him one day because I enjoy listening to him. Still do. But he was sort of on his radio show, you know, sort of down on Christians that treat Isaiah 714 as a prophecy of the virgin birth of Christ because it says Alma and not Betula. And his point was, if Isaiah wanted to communicate the virgin birth of Christ, he would have used the different word betula, which always, mean vir- always means virgin. And it's, it was kind of hard to hear that, because here's a guy that's so smart and probably knows Hebrew much better than I do, but he was completely wrong in what he was saying. You can't just make this case that, oh... You know, it says Alma, and if that meant virgin, it would use Betula instead of Alma because the Hebrews had no precise word for virgin. Here, Betula is used, but that obviously is not some kind of ironclad word for virgin every time it's used or else the expression, she had not known a man, would be unnecessary. Actually, Betula is used of a widow in Joel chapter one verse eight. Mourn like a virgin, Uh, Betula in sackcloth, grieving for the betrothed of her youth. So don't fall for this argument that it says Alma instead of Betula, because you'll hear that a lot. There is no ironclad word for virgin, and so the author who is Isaiah, uses this word Alma, which means a young maiden of marriageable age. But it is interesting that when the Septuagint translators translated Isaiah 7, verse 14, and they did this in the Greek translation of Hebrew Bible, 200 years before Jesus was born, as they did that translation of Isaiah 7, verse 14, going from Hebrew to Greek, they used the word Parthenos, which always means virgin, always in Greek. And so the authors of the Septuagint well understood what Isaiah was talking about when he used this word Alma. This is a prophecy about the virgin birth of Christ. And back in Genesis chapter 24, it's very clear through the word Betula and through the expression she had not known a man, that Rebecca was also a virgin. She was preserving herself for the future. She arrives, verse 16, the servant now asks a question. Is this, he's wondering to himself, "Is this the one or not? Because I, I gave God a few verses earlier, a very specific prayer request. Well, let's take this out for a test drive and see if it works. It's what he's doing. And you look at verse 17 and it says, "Then the servant ran to meet her and said, "Please let me drink a little water from your jar." Now she's supposed to say, "Have a drink." And your camels can have a drink too. If she goes that extra step, she is the one. And what you see down there in verses 18 through 20 is Rebecca's response. And she passes the test with flying colors. Look at what she says there in verses 18 through 20. She said, drink, my Lord. And she quickly lowered her jar to give her hand and gave him a drink. Verse 19, Now when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw also for your camels until they have finished drinking. Ding, 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 ding. Verse 20, So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran back to the well to draw, and she drew for all his camels. One of the things, and we've pointed this out already, is her industrious character. Dr. Fruchtenbaum says in verse 20, is the fulfillment. And she hastened, and she hasted, meaning she was expeditious. Emptied her pitcher into the trough, The first of many times she had to do so, and so she ran. She's running. She ran again under the well to draw. Dr. Fruchtenbaum, by way of commentary, says this required many repeated actions and drew for all his camels. In verses 16 through 20, Rebecca is viewed as being very active. The Hebrew text here has only one verb for speech, but Rebecca is the subject of 11 verbs of action. There's a woman to marry. I mean, she's a keeper. A, virginity. B, beauty. C, she's a servant. And rather than saying, Lord, bring a person like that into my life, you want to meet Mrs. Riot, you got to be... That's right. the prayer is, Lord, make me like this so I can be equally yoked with my future partner. I mean, everything you want for your future partner should be in practice in our own lives. Yeah, but I'm already married and you don't understand. You don't know my husband. You don't know my wife. Well, try this out for size. Why don't you become what you want them to be? Try that one, hon. Well, I want them to be more prayerful. Why don't you become a person of prayer? I want them to be more of a student of God's Word. Well, why don't you become more of a student of God's Word? I want them, see, the focus with so much of us and conflicts that we have within marriage is we're always aiming our guns at the other person. The Bible is saying, look at yourself. I want them to be more consistent with attending the local church. Well then why don't you be that way? I want them to get the kids to Sunday school regularly. Well, you take the lead and do that. And rather than, you know, pestering, nagging, attacking, criticizing your spouse, which is very sadly, it's very easy for us to do, which really doesn't do much anyway, have you noticed? Doesn't do a lot of good. Just drives a wedge between marital partners. Why don't you be what you want him or her to be? Try that one on for size and see if you don't see a change in them. Very different way of looking at marriage, isn't it? So she is a worker, she is a servant, and the servant here starts to observe. I mean, the guy, I guess, doesn't get it that God just answered his prayer. Verse 21, Meanwhile, the man, that's Abraham's servant, arguably Eliezer of Damascus. Meanwhile, the man was gazing at her in silence to know whether the Lord has made his journey successful or not. You know, what, what are you gazing for? God just answered your prayer request. I and mean, there's, no, there's no need to stop and stare. Why don't you just praise the Lord? You know, it's interesting that sometimes God answers, answers prayers so quick, we really don't believe they just got answered. You'll see an example of that in the book of Acts chapter 12, where Peter is in prison. The church is praying that Peter miraculously gets out of prison. Peter goes to where the church is meeting in Jerusalem, and he knocks on the door, and the church says, don't bother us, we're too busy praying, when God had answered the prayer request. It says in Acts 12, verses 13 through 16, when he Knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice because of her joy, she did not open the gate but ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the front gate. Now, you would think the church that was in prayer about this would say, Praise the Lord, the prayers have been answered. Instead, it says, Acts 12, verse 15, they said to her, You are out of your mind. <laughs> But she, and thank God for the Rhodas in the body of Christ, she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying it's his angel. Oh, you didn't see Peter. You probably saw his guardian angel, and by the way, you're 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 messing up midweek prayer meeting here, so be quiet. But Peter continued knocking, and when they had opened the door they saw him and were amazed. Why be amazed? Didn't you just ask? I mean, who who um, is it that we believe we're praying to anyway? I mean, isn't God the God of heaven and earth? I mean, rather than be shocked, I can't believe he just answered this. Why not say, you know, Lord, forgive me for not believing fast enough. Forgive me for undercutting undervaluing your love for me and your provision for me. You go down to verse 22 and the servant now upon knowing that he's dealing now with Isaac's wife, goes right into action. You see it there in verse 22 It says, when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring, weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her wrists, weighing ten shekels in gold. Ring, bracelets, obviously items of value. Why is that a big deal? Because she has a brother, I think he's her brother named Laban, who's motivated by material things. There's a major gap in his character. You'll start to see it mentioned in verse 30, which we won't be getting to today. But Laban is very impressed with material things. And you'll see the empty character of Laban later on as he's cheating Jacob, changing his wages, telling lies later on down the road. So these material things are important. Not so much showing God's value to Rebecca, although that clearly is part of it. But material things have a way of revealing the empty character of other people. Judas was exactly like that. You remember that scene there in John 12 where I think it was Mary, she breaks the alabaster of oil and she begins to pour out um, oil upon Jesus because whom uh, is forgiven much, loves much, right? And Judas said, you know, that should have been sold to the poor. That should have been liquidated and given to the poor. And then John, in John 12, adds the parenthetical comment that Judas really didn't care about the poor. He was the money changer or the one that carried the money bag around and he used to embezzle or pilfer money from that bag. I mean, Judas, very, very sadly, did not care one iota about the things of God. He cared about money. He's the one, as you know from biblical history, who sold out Jesus for, for 30 pieces of silver. I mean, not even gold, silver. That was his asking price. Why did Judas hang around so long? I think as the kingdom was being offered to Israel, he probably figured that the kingdom is going to come and I'm going to be given a ground floor as I'm going to be on the ground floor of someone that rules and reigns in this kingdom. And as things didn't go according to plan, as it was obvious that national Israel was not going to receive the offer of the kingdom, and as Jesus talked more and more in his latter ministry about the kingdom being in a state of postponement for a long period of time, I think that angered Judas. He was not getting out of the deal what he wanted. And it culminated in his decision to betray Christ with a kiss and sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Money does funny things to people. you know even as our church prospers here in so many ways at Sugarland Bible Church i think our prayer should be lord keep keep our motives pure help, help our motives to be right help us to remember why we got into this to begin with a love of christ love of the savior don't let the things of earth change our focus. And yet, Laban's focus, as you're going to see, was very, very materialistic. He really liked these, this ring and these bracelets because of their monetary value. More, more on that down, down the road. So, the servant, verse 23, gives um, an inquiry. He asks a couple of questions. And said, whose daughter are you? That's question number one. Please tell me, is there room for us to lodge in your father's house? Now, Rebecca answers question number one in verse uh, 24. She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. So she gives a little bit of her family tree. We've studied that family tree there at the end of Genesis chapter 22. Abraham has a brother named Nahor. Nahor is married to Milcah. Milcah and Nahor are going to have several children together. One of them is Bethuel. And through Bethuel is going to come Rebekah. This is the group that Abraham said to his servant, go to where my people are in Haran to gain a wife For my son Isaac. Then. She answers the second question in verse 25 and said to him, we have plenty of both straw and feed and a room to lodge in. This is a this is a servant. She not only gives the servant water, she waters the camels and then do you have lodging for us? Yes, we do. This is someone that's not sitting around waiting for Mr. Wright, because obviously in her character she was already Mrs. Wright. Her character is just outstanding. You go down to verses 26 and 27, and with these we'll, we'll stop. We're the servant now, after seeing all of this, responds in a way that, that's, that's the only appropriate way to respond depending on what God just did. I mean, what do we do when we are confronted with truth and we see the hand of God and it's so obvious that God's hand is in it? You know, what do we do? Well, there's two things we ought to do. Number one, we ought to worship. And number two, we ought to give thanksgiving. Worship described there in verse 26. Thanksgiving described there in verse 27. Look at verse 26. Then the man, that's the servant that made this 450-mile pilgrimage to an area that he didn't know much about, to meet someone whose name he didn't, didn't even know, totally dependent upon the providence of God. God has answered this man's prayer requests in a magnificent fashion. And then it says, then the man, that would be the servant, bowed low and worshiped the Lord. What is worship exactly? It is a response to truth. It is a response to a reality. The Modern evangelical church is about as confused on this subject as you can get. Because today, when the subject of worship comes up, the whole conversation is about personal, personalities and styles. Drums, guitar, organ, on and on, ad infinitum, ad nauseum. Forgetting why worship even exists. It's not about preferences and my personal preferences. It is about encountering the God of truth. Seeing the providence of God and the leading of God in such a clear way that the only thing you know how to do is to praise the Lord. I getting this definition of worship from my Professor J. Dwight Pentecost, as he was teaching us in one of his classes there at Dallas Seminary through the book of Revelation, there's that scene in heaven where the 24 elders, the four living creatures, the myriads upon myriads of angels are praising God. And he said, gentlemen, do you know what worship is? And not a single hand went up. Because we as young pastors were... Confused by the conversation of worship, just like anybody else. He said, worship is a response to truth. What it is. It's uh, an audible or sometimes bodily action. You'll notice the servant is bowing low because he's responding to something that he sees, which is the obvious hand of God. I guarantee you that if we come to church with that type of attitude about worship, all of this stuff about personal preferences would fade into the background very fast because worship isn't even about us and our feelings and our preferences. It is about the God of the universe who has spoken and acted and I can't wait to get into the presence of God with God's people and respond. Is it a cappella? Is it a guitar? Is it whatever? Who cares? If the, if the words are biblical, then we ought to be people that have, um, hearts of worship. You see verse 27, the second way he responded, he gave thanksgiving. He said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth towards my master. As for me, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brother. He he gives thanks. I will be honest with you yet again that it's very easy for me to move on and ask God for the next thing without taking the time to thank Him for what I have. It's easy in prayer to lose that place of thanksgiving. When was the last time in prayer that you went into the presence of the Lord and you began to pray and you didn't ask Him for a single thing? And I'm not against asking God for things because Jesus said we ought to do that. Give us this day our daily bread. There's nothing wrong with asking God to fill needs. And we're very good at that. But when was the last time we actually got into the presence of the Lord and just said, you know, Lord, I'm going to spend this time just thanking you. How does the song go? count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God has done. Look at look at all the blessings that we have. I mean, health. I, I realize that America is different, but to be honest with you, the whole world still wants to come here. You live in the freest, most prosperous nation that's ever existed in the history of mankind. And we get into this mindset of perpetually complaining. How about thanking the Lord that it even exists? And the blood of the patriots were spilled to give us this great experiment in freedom called the United States of America. It's just a different mindset. He said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth toward my master. Loving kindness, covenant oath. Covenant loyalty. I'm going to thank God for the fact that everything my master told me to do under God's hands has been executed. As for me, it's kind of interesting the servant finally gets to himself second. His whole focus is Abraham, bringing this marriage together. As for me, mentions himself second, the Lord has guided me in the way of the house of my master's brother. The Lord guided me the whole way, 450 miles. And he took me to the exact right person at the exact right hand, uh, time. Do you believe that God can do things like this in your life? I do because the book of Hebrews says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Don't, don't look at this and say, wow, uh, I'm glad God did that for him in 2000 BC. my life's different. No, it's not. If God is exactly the same and his character cannot change... Malachi 3 verse 6, God says, I do not change. He'll do it for you. He'll do it for me. He's just looking for people that will, that will trust him. Well, next week we'll pick it up there in verse 28 where Laban will enter the picture. And so you might want to read verses 28 through 67 for next time. We uh, conclude our services with the gospel. The gospel is good news because Jesus paid everything. His final words on the cross were it is finished to tell us die, which means paid in full. If it's paid in full, then there's really nothing else for me to do as a lost sinner but to receive it as a gift. Or else he would have said paid 99%. He did not say that. He said paid in full. Well, if it's paid in full, come and receive. Come and enjoy. And the Bible 160 times tells us the single condition that has to be met to enter into that relationship with the God that made you and the God that redeems you, it is faith alone in Christ alone, period. You Hear the gospel, you trust in the message, and just like that, you're a newborn child of God. Well, gee pastors is just too easy. And I agree. It looks a little too easy from where I stand as well. But guess what? I don't make the rules. God makes the rules. And this is how God ordained for salvation to take place. If you're here today and you've never trusted in the Savior, the finished work, you can do it right now in the building. You can do it right now listening online. You can do it listening to the archives after the service is over. It's a matter of privacy where the Lord convicts us of our need to do this, and we respond in our heart of hearts by trusting in the provision of Jesus Christ. Christianity, as we've said many times, is not a 12-step program. It's a single step. Why? Because it's been paid for. So come and receive. It's something... You can do now without raising a hand, joining an aisle, joining an aisle. There we go. You know what I meant. Walking an aisle. And I've never understood that walking an aisle. What do you do with people in wheelchairs? That's kind of a problem, isn't it? What do you do with the elderly? Um, come on, guys. Let's let's get back to the word here. It's faith alone in Christ alone, and that's what saves. If it's something you want more information on, I'm available after the service to talk. Shall we pray? Lord, we're grateful for this story that occurred 4,000 years ago, how you guided two people together under providence and miraculous provision. We ask and invite you to work that same way in our lives this week. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said...